0: Please take your seats, if you would. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, So, we're looking this morning at Philippians 3, and Paul has been outlining uh, the danger of legalism in the church, Uh, people who lean upon generating their own merit when it comes to relating to God. And Paul says that's a complete Dead end to spiritual life. If anyone could generate their merit or enough merit to stand upon before God, Paul says, I am that man. And I have learned that even my best, most zealous religious efforts are but a splendid waste of time. They are basically just splendid sins. And he's been dealing with that. And now he's turning our attention to another danger that faces the church in every age and that is the danger of worldliness. These are Christians he's describing. He weeps over them, almost certainly an indicator that they are members of the covenant community, but they're not walking in covenant fellowship. They're not walking in the right direction. And this passage, I suppose, sets before us the perennial danger that faces the church, that we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. So, please listen carefully as we uh, hear the Word of God, and we'll pick up the reading in, in Philippians 3 verse 14 and read down to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. I press on toward the upward, or sorry, I, I press on toward the goal for the upward prize no, I'll do that again, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true, or hold fast, or walk in step with what we've already attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us." by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God. Well, the story is told of a young candidate for Christian ministry who came before a pulpit committee in a church that was considering hiring him to be their pastor. And the committee chairman asked him, "'Son,' do you know the Bible pretty good? It was a country church. The young minister said, yes, pretty good. The chairman asked, which part do you know best? The minister replied, I know the New Testament best. Which part of the New Testament do you know best? asked the chairman. The young minister said, several parts. The chairman said, well, why don't you tell us the story of the prodigal son? The young man said, fine there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who went down to Jericho by night, and he fell upon stony ground. And the thorns choked him half to death. The next morning Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by and carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb, and he hung there forty days and forty nights. And he afterwards did hunger, and the ravens came and fed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to the boot dock, and he caught a ship there to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall. And he said, chunk her down, boys, chunk her down. And they said, how many times shall we chunk her down till seven times seven? And he said, nay, but 70 times seven. And they chunked her down 490 times. and she burst asunder in their midst, (laughs) and they picked up 12 baskets of the leftovers. (laughs) And in the resurrection, whose whose wife will she be? The committee chairman suddenly interrupted the young minister and said to the remainder of the committee, fellows, I think we ought to ask the church to call him to be our minister. He's awfully young, but he sure does know the Bible very well. And so, I tell that story, this poor young man, of course, his head is full of Bible stories, but it's entirely empty of any meaning of the Bible's teaching, right? His story contains many parts of the Bible. He just doesn't make sense of any of them. He talks the talk, but he clearly doesn't know what any of it means. And Paul in our text this morning is saying that what was true of that young minister can be true of you and me with respect to the cross. That Paul speaks of people in the church at Philippi, and he calls them enemies of the cross. It's a profound statement, and he does so weeping. He loves these people. He knows them. These are people who can talk about the cross, who can sing about the cross, who you can even wear crosses around their neck, like um, that pillow guy, who always, if you look at him, he always has his cross kind of accidentally on purpose, kind of dangling outside his shirt. You've got, you got to know that's staged. Every video, watch it. It's always there, right? I don't know whether he's a good man or a bad man, but it, it just looks um, a little cringy. So we can sing about the cross, talk about the cross, wear the cross, and yet does the cross make any fundamental difference in the way you and I live our life? The cross, after all, is an instrument of death. When Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer famously observed, he bids him come and die. He bids him die to his sin. He bids him die to this sin life. He bids him to live for another world. And Paul is describing these people in Philippi who would say they agree with all that, but the problem is they're living for this world, and they're not living for the next. And that is a problem. And so, Paul says two things to this church. He says, don't Follow the many, follow me. Don't follow the many, follow me. Are you following the many in the church? God forbid, not the many in this church, but are you following the many in the church, Catholic, the wider church? Or Paul says, Are you following me? Don't follow the many, Paul says let that word sink into your head, many. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, the many. And Christ is weeping, or Paul is weeping, and he he reminds me of Jesus. Remember in Matthew 23 when Christ pronounces, "'Woe, woe, woe on the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves, you blind men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier aspects of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs and outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Then he describes, remember, how the Pharisees had this perennial problem that's been true in the church ever since, right, where they decorate the graves of God's former prophets, but they dig the graves of God's current prophets. The Pharisees loved Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and all the Old Testament prophets, but they wanted to kill God's own Son. And even in the church today, you'll find people lauding Calvin and Spurgeon and Bavinck and all these great theologians, but often they're sharpening the knife, the, the, their their knives for the night of the long knives as they uh, dispatch with their current pastor. And as Christ warns the Pharisees, he sheds tears. He says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that." kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing? And one of the Gospels, remember, describes Jesus weeping outside Jerusalem, warm, salty tears running down His cheeks as He looked at these people, um, abandoning their own Savior and committing themselves towards their own destruction. And Don Carson, speaking about, about um, Paul here, says, for our part, he says, we must not become people who denounce but who never weep. There's too much of that in our pulpits today, men denouncing but not weeping. I've known ministers, well-known ministers, uh, famous ministries, you'd know their name, but I'll not mention them this morning, but one in particular I can think of. And I I listened to him preach 30 years ago at a conference in England, and it really moved my soul. But now his ministry is is known much more by what he denounces. He's always denouncing other ministries, other theological errors, and that's an important part of a minister's role. But something of the sweetness of Christ has slowly leached out of his ministry, and it concerns me. Paul, Paul uh, Carson says, We must not become people who denounce but who never weep. Neither may we become people who weep but never denounce. There's a ditch on both sides. Too much is at stake, both ways, he says. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many. And that's not just true in the world, of course, but it's true in the church. In the, in the seven churches of the book of Revelation, Jesus condemns five of them. Uh, not completely condemns them, you remember, but He condemns five of them, and five of those seven churches are in real present danger of being de-churched, having the lampstand removed from them. Only two churches of the seven are worthy of indiscriminate praise and are worthy of us to follow without fear of being led astray. And Jesus said as much in Matthew 7. Uh, you remember, turn there with me, Matthew 7, 13. Let that Let that word, many, sink into your heads. Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And he's not just speaking about people outside the church, because later in the passage you remember those awesome words in in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, the doubling of the name, like Samuel, Samuel in the Old Testament, denotes intimacy, assurance, confidence. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works, many wonders in your name. These were men and women um, who prophesied, who spoke, and what they said had some connection, at least, with the word of God. And these were people who spoke, and the demons listened. That's pretty impressive. Imagine someone coming into this meeting house, and they started to convulse and blaspheme Jesus and speak in another voice. And we look at them, and they seem to be demon-possessed. And let's say, I stood up and rebuked them. What is thy name? Come out. And they come out, and they're restored. You'd think, wow, that's impressive. And do many wonders in your name. The word wonder means to do things only God could do. If I were to look at young Eddie and say, "Eddie, be healed of your Down syndrome," and his DNA was rewritten before your eyes, and he was healed, Christ did that kind of thing on earth. Every type of disease He healed. Profound mental handicap, chromosomal abnormalities were rewritten by the finger of God as Jesus spoke to them, and they were healed. If I did that, you'd think, "Wow, that's pretty impressive." And you'd think, "Whatever else we can say about Pastor Stewart, he must be saved." because no one could do these things unless God is with him, And there's no indication in Matthew 7 that these people didn't do—Christ doesn't say, you didn't do false work. It was like Benny Hinn, you know. He, it was all a plant. It was, they, they weren't really people being healed. And, it, and it's not—we we look at—we read that verse and we think of charlatans like Benny Hinn, right, and others like that. Kenneth Copeland, whose eyes are going ka-ching, they're spinning like the—the the, the the peaches in a slot machine, right, when they're preaching. It's all about the money, and everybody knows that, right? But in the Greek, you remember in Matthew 7, the most important words come first. In your name did we not prophesy. In your name did we not cast out demons. And in your name did we not do many wonders. The New King James, I think, gets it that way around, and it's the way it is in the original Greek. And it carries the idea it wasn't just these people were doing amazing things, it's why they thought they were doing them. They really these people really thought they were legitimate, so legitimate, that on the last day when Christ separates them from the sheep into the goats, they argue with Christ. Lord, there must be some mistake. And Jesus says that's not just going to happen to a few people, it's going to happen to many people. is it going to happen to you? Is it going to happen to me? It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord, with your lips. It's quite another to live, Lord, Lord, in your life. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Don't follow the many. Now, Paul goes through, he gives you kind of, you know, what are some of the signs you might see in these people's lives? If you go back to Philippians 3, a second. And there's, there's D's all over, there's five D's here. No difference, first of all. The cross made no difference to their life. The way they were living, the way they were walking, was diametrically opposed to the cross. Jesus says, whoever whoever desires to follow me must take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever. That instrument of death that calls us to die to self and die to sin and die to this world and to live for another world. Has the cross made a difference to your life? Has the cross sum and substance? Not just a piece of jewelry you wear around your neck, but is it the cross, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died? My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. You sing those words, but do those words resonate as… is your, is your heart moving in that trajectory? We're living sacrifices, right? And the problem with living sacrifices is they keep on crawling off the altar, and we all have that problem. But, but, but is the cross moving you? The cross made no difference. Difference is the first one. The second day is driven. They were driven by what felt good to the body. Paul says their God is their belly. It wasn't just that they ate too much at church fellowship dinners. He's it's, it's speaking here of a much bigger issue, that they knew no master above their own bodily desires for pleasure and satisfaction. We all enjoy pleasure. No one loves pain, and the Bible isn't suggesting that we should, but do your desires master you? Do they control you? John speaks of the world as a place where men do what where I pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, what looks good to the body, the lust of the flesh, what feels good to the body, and the pride of life, what makes me sensual in everything. Has the power of lust been broken, or is it still your master? The cross made no difference. They were driven by what felt good to the body— They were drawn down to the world. Paul says it's their mindset. They set their minds on earthly things. It's a danger for us all. Jesus speaks, you remember, in the parable of the sower of the busyness of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. And that can happen to me, it can happen to all of us. We can focus down here on on stuff down here, the lies that money whispers in our ears. Just the busyness of life, just running from pillar to post, we've we've all been there. I've had to examine my own heart recently that this this very weekend that my brother was preaching, Jeff Gleason was preaching on the Christian and the family. It was a wonderful address on family worship and discipleship of children, and it it really convicted me that in the busyness of life taking children to lacrosse games and soccer games and running hither, thither, and yon, and the rounds of homework and so forth and so on, it's so easy for me as a minister, to allow family worship to fall off the table far too often and to get caught up in the rat race of preparing my children to live and do well in corporate America, but not preparing my children to live and do well for heaven. And if that can happen to me, I dare say it can happen to some of you as well. Are your sights set down here on earth are your roots, are the tent pegs of your soul set in cement? Or are you living in the constant realization that soon you will strike the tent and, and move on to your real home? One of my great heroes, Edward Donnelly, died yesterday, I heard, and he's one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. And he's had 20, ill health the last 20 years, but he, he's just a, I've never heard someone preach Christ with such glory. It was wonderful. But he's in heaven now. And one day it'll be me, and one day it'll be you. We'll be called. God will say, strike the tent. And it won't matter if we put our. Well, it will matter, but it won't, it won't matter in, in, in the eternal side of things that our tent pegs are set in cement. But we can get too comfortable down here. And sometimes God has to bring trial and difficulty and pain to break up the, the cement around our tent pegs and to remind us that we are bound for another world. We're bound for eternity. So, no difference. The cross made no difference in their life. They were driven by what felt good to the body, desire for sex and food and pleasure and and those things, and they were drawn down to this world. Their mindset was, nature is the whole show. This life is where it's at. Delight. Where's your delight? They glory in their shame. The word glory means to find something weighty Attractive, beautiful, substantial, right? What they boasted in. Now, they're easy targets. They are those in the church who would own the queer lifestyle, the LGBTQ and Q crowd. Uh, And they own that and boast about it as if they were gay Christians, right? And they should be ashamed of it. Um but they're easy targets. And if you're here this morning and you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want you to know there are no clean sins. My sins are dirtier than anybody else in this church is because my office aggravates them. Let not many of you become teachers, for you will receive a stricter judgment. And you're welcome here if you're LGBTQ and Q. You are welcome here. The gospel that saved me can save you too. It can save me from my sins, and it can save you from your sins. So I'm not just pillaring that crowd, but they're easy targets, right? But the, the the issue is, what are you boasting? What what grabs your attention so you go, "Oh, this is glorious. This is where life's at. It doesn't get any better than this." Maybe you're a young person, you're a young lad, and for your, your mind, it's. It's a video game, playing a video game with your friends online. And there's, there's nothing essentially wrong with playing video games with your friends online, but if that's, the, well, that's what lights your candle. Don't forget you are made for another world. Or maybe you're a young lady, and what lights your candle is people looking at you and thinking, oh, she's so beautiful, and, and you think, oh, that's, that's, that's it. That doesn't get any better than that. But if, if human beings looking at you think, oh, she's lovely and that feels good, what would it must be like when you descend, ascend into heaven and become like Christ, and the angels look at you and think, oh, isn't she lovely, as she's become clothed in Jesus Christ's glory? What are you boasting in this morning? What makes life worth living for you? Is it Christ and knowing Christ. Or have the desires for other things distracted you. And then lastly, their destination. They're bound, Paul says, for destruction. Their end is destruction. Don't don't judge the road by how, how it feels along the way. You're at a water park, and there was this, the best, funnest ride in the water park, and people are lining up for it, and they're shooting down the tube, and they're going "wee," and going down. there and it just looks so wonderful. But then, as you're as you're standing in line, you notice that the halfway down the tube, the the tube is fractured, and there's a jagged edge, and the water's pouring out. And one after another, people are going "boof," and they're not saying "wee" anymore as they as they fall several hundred feet down and land in a crumpled heap of bodies and blood, and brokenness on the rocks below. You wouldn't judge that slide by how it felt on the way down. You would judge that slide by where it takes you in the end, wouldn't you? And so don't judge this world. Don't judge the many, right, in the world, and even in the church, are, are going down the wrong way. Don't judge them by how, how their life looks now, Judge them by how their life looks in eternity. Let that word sink into your head, young man, young lady. Eternity. You're bound for eternity. Don't follow the many, Paul says. Follow me. Follow me. There's one man going in the right direction, the apostle Paul. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ, and follow those who are following me. And the, the Greek word carries the idea of it. It's a, it's a joint task. Simimitai is the word we get mimic from, but it's a, sum, it's, a, it's a mimicking together. It's something you do in community, a new community. We need the church. It's we together as the church follow the apostles as they follow Christ It's not a solo sport. It's why it's so important that you're in the church, in the fellowship of the church, with brothers and sisters, with the same nature, struggling with the same sins, and going to the same eternal destination. It's a new community Paul's calling us to, a heavenly community, and I love this church. I thank God for this church, because there's, there are heavenly people here. But some of you, and it's, maybe it's me this morning, I don't know, but some of you, you look completely bored out of your tree. You're looking at your feet as I'm talking to you about your souls and about eternity. Is that the way not to follow the many, but to follow the, the me, Paul says? Is this Is something that commands your attention this morning? We need the church come together as the new community, setting that example. Men, fathers in the home, are you setting the example of men on their way to eternity? We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion, the beautiful city of God. We need to remember that we get tired, we get beaten down in the third quarter, and we feel as if everything's difficult, there's pressure, and we can we can we can lose our joy and lose our focus, and we need to remember where we are going. A new community, bound for a new homeland. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. In heaven. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's where our citizenship's in. Our citizenship isn't stamped down here. We don't belong to this world. We don't belong to America. We don't belong to our neighborhoods, however glorious those neighborhoods are. Our passport and our souls, Christian, we're bound for heaven, and we need constant reminders of that because we constantly forget that. A new community, a new homeland— and a new hope, a new hope. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. A new hope, a Savior is coming. Jesus is coming. Think about that. Remember that. A a Christ is coming the heavens will be torn open. There'll be a vast rent in space and time. And through that rent will come innumerable angels and archangels, the seraphim and the cherubim, myriads of thousands and thousands upon ten thousands of these angelic beings one of whom could wipe out 180,000 of the entire Syrian army, and they will swoop into this world and gather the elect from the four corners of the world. Will they gather you, young people, old people? Will they draw you out into this world? And in the midst of them will come Christ, seated on a great white throne of judgment, and it will come down and land on the earth with, with tremendous force, and the earth will shake, and the trumpet of God will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise. And in a moment, those of us who are in Christ will be changed. A Savior is coming. A change is coming. Like His glorious body, uh, Paul says, like, will have—the Greek word carries the idea of being transformed into the same shape or the same style as Jesus. look at your body now, and maybe it's crumpling under the weight of old age, and you can't move as fast as you could do, and you've got tremors and difficulty, and it's hard to walk, and you're unstable, and you hardly even remember what it was like to be young and to run. I can barely remember what it was like to be young and run. I get to to about 60% of the pace that I used to be able to run at when I was 18. And I know I'm going at 60% of the pace. And when I try to change gear to go faster, there's just nothing there. It's like that scene in Star Wars when Han Solo goes, watch this, and goes, vroom, and pulls the light speed lever, and just goes, and nothing happens. And Princess is going, what happened? No, nothing happened. And Han is going, Chewie, what's going on? And it's all a mess. That's like me. I'm running. I'm doing 60%. I know it's 60%. I try to change gear, and there's just nothing there. It's just really depressing. And maybe you're thinking, you can still run. I can barely even walk, right? And when Jesus comes, all of that will fall away from you. In a moment, all of the degradation of our chromosomes that leads to old age will be wiped off. Like when you take a… someone was saying recently they had surgery on their eyes, had the cataracts removed, one of our or ladies, and she was telling me, it's like, I just can't get tired of seeing things, because my vision had got so cloudy, I didn't realize it was that bad, and suddenly I can see the world with clarity, and the colors are just popping out, and I I don't get, it's amazing. And likewise, when Christ comes back, it'll be like, Tear- tearing off the, a, a dirty old screen and an iPad, a screen protector, and you'll take it off and it'll be clear and clean and bright and better than anything you've ever seen before. And people on earth will look at you and they'll be strongly tempted to worship you because you will look just like Jesus. You'll have the same style. You'll be the same size and shape. You'll glow with His glory. And the angels will hide their eyes when you walk by, resplendent in these insignia of divinity. Now, he will only be God, but we will share his nature, Peter says, which I could never say if it weren't in the Bible. It's an amazing thing to say. And we will be like him. And how that happens is the cross. The cross of Christ embraced by faith, internalized, born. It's a rough, there are no handles on the cross. We carry it. It rubs our shoulders raw. It feels more like dying than living. And as that great philosopher Clint Eastwood said, dying is a poor way to make a living boy, but it's the way to make you like Jesus as His cross becomes part of you, installed like an app, like a new operating system into a computer that totally changes everything, the way everything works, a new operating system comes in, and we start thinking that dying is the way to life. I must die to myself. I must die to my sins. I must die to this world. When Alex Alex Murtaugh was taken away into prison yesterday to have his head shaved, His boats and his mansions and all the money he used to have, I don't think matter to him the same way anymore. He's going to a new destination. And for the Christian, all of the pleasures and delights of this world, they become a little bit dull when we come to the cross. Because we begin to die to them and they die to us, and we begin to go to a new destination, which is not a penitentiary, it's heaven. Christ is, and the angels are, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and the hope of that day that when we see Him, we will be like Him, and all begins as the cross begins to kill us. As Jesus says, unless a seed of grain falls into the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. You die, that you might live? Or has the cross ceased to have any weight for you, like a little plastic cross or a gold cross around your neck? There's no weight to it. It doesn't change the way you think. It doesn't change the way you live. Do you mean to go to heaven? Don't follow the many. Follow me, Paul says. the end of the conference yesterday, Jeff took me out to Burger House, H-A-U-S. It's a great gourmet burger place down in Augusta. I had a burger and some fries. It was really good. Diet starts tomorrow. But but I didn't, I didn't know how to get there, right? So he, he, um, he led me the way, and he also gave me the GPS coordinates. So I followed him, but I also had the GPS on my computer just in case I lost sight of him, but when I'm driving through Augusta, every other car is going somewhere else. He's going to Burger House for my dinner, and I want to be there with him, so I'm following him. If you were arrested now, young people or older people, if you were arrested and you were charged with following the Apostle Paul, Alex Murtaugh was arrested and charged for murdering his son and his wife. And the great question was, will there be enough evidence to convict him? If you were charged with following Paul to heaven, and all of your thoughts and all of your words and all of your deeds were brought to the fore as evidence. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would the prosecuting attorney be able to say, well, look, every morning he's up, or most mornings, he's reading his Bible She's in the Word. She's reading the Word of the Apostle Paul. She's struggling. She's fighting their sins in her life, yes, but she's, 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 she's following it. She's reading it. She's internalizing it. She's pushing down the thoughts of this world. She enjoys this world, but as a, the way I might enjoy the airport tomorrow, but if I, start, if I started building a house in the airport and living there, my wife might wonder, and the conference might wonder, where are you going? I enjoy the airport, but not that much, right? Uh, We should enjoy this world. There's lots of delights here, but not so much that it forgets us. This world is a departure lounge, and eternity is our home. Don't follow the many. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Wake us all up. I needed to hear this message this morning, I suspect. My brothers and sisters did too, and I pray, Lord, that you would waken us up and shake off the shakeable things of this world and remind us we're bound for eternity. In Christ's name. Amen.